0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see I'm excited about what we're going to look at together this morning. If you're visiting with us, it might be helpful to know we've been looking at the life of Moses and uh, the story as it's recorded in the book of Exodus. And as we continue uh, looking at the life of Moses, I want to make sure we understand the, the big picture of all the things that are going on. Because in addition to looking at what God is doing in the life of Moses, we're learning about what God is doing to shape the identity of his people, Israel. They're learning what it means to be a people of God because for this generation up to this point, all they've known is the life of a slave. And God is helping them understand that that he doesn't want them to be defined by what they do. He wants them to be defined by whose they are so that their identity flows out of their relationship with Him. And if that's the case, then understanding about yourself and our relationship with God is deeply connected with an accurate view of who God is. Because keep in mind, all these people have known is the dominion of a cruel taskmaster. And so God has made himself known. He has come to to set his people free. He wants them to trust his character. So as we looked at last time, he gives them tests, not to see them fail, but to prove time after time that he is faithful. So we see God working in the life of Moses. We we see him developing the, the identity of his people. But we'll also begin to see more and more is God making a name for himself among the nations. We'll see it this morning, but what you'll happen to notice as we continue to go on is that God's reputation is preceding his people. So that when they do arrive to an area, more and more often people are going to say, Oh, we've heard about you, and we've heard about the things your God has done on your behalf. So clearly there's a lot going on that's more than just what's happening in the life of Moses. And there's still a lot more that is yet to be done. This morning in particular, we're going to look at God establishing law and order. The reason that's important is because every society since the beginning of man was established on some rule of law, a code of conduct that sinners or is guided by a core set of values and agreed upon principles of morality. Order in any society exists when, when people's lives are guarded by these laws and statutes, when disputes are resolved by that standard that has been agreed upon. See, without law and order, a society is ultimately overcome by chaos. And that's why relativism is so dangerous to any society. And in my opinion, I think it's the greatest threat to our own nation. And here's why. Our country is moving away from a conduct that is guided by a core set of values and agreed upon principles of morality. Instead, we see a legal system that is used to protect the rights of the individual, but within the absence of a moral code, the rights of the individual simply means whatever the individual thinks is right. Instead of ordering society around a moral code, the law is simply used to allow each person to determine their own morality. So to put it in a biblical perspective, instead of the Ten Commandments, you have the Ten Suggestions. That's what allows you to pick and choose to shape as you intend for your own individual purposes, doing what is right in your own eyes. And I'm here to tell you, as sure as I'm standing before you now, no society ever has or ever will last with that kind of foundation. It will crumble in chaos. That's why passages like this morning are so very important. See, the worst possible thing that could happen to any people is for God to allow them to go their own way. That's the worst possible judgment because it would lead to judgment and not to God's blessing. That's why I'm concerned for our country. I think in the end we are the con- we are reaping the consequences of rejecting God's law, and going our own way. You see, God's law was never intended to be a burden. It's actually an expression of His love. It's a moral code based upon His character, which means that means there's there's goodness built into it. There's protection within its boundaries, and ultimately, as in all of Scripture, it's intended to lead us to an understanding of who Christ is and the significance of what He's done on our behalf. And so I pray this morning as we look at these passages together that we, as His people, might recover some of that original intent and be even more convinced to live our lives accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, I think sometimes when we come across passages like this and we hear the word law and we think about the Ten Commandments, I think if we're honest, sometimes we see that as somewhat obsolete, uh, really not that relevant to where we live today. But yet I pray this morning that we see together how incredibly relevant it is, perhaps today more than ever. Help us to see the heart behind what you were doing for your people to give guidance to their lives, to turn their hearts towards you and to ultimately save them from themselves. Father, may we recover that and be committed to live by it even more so. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, just as a reminder, you may remember last time we looked at how gracious God was with all the grumbling in the desert. You remember the people complained incessantly, and yet God continued to bless and guide them. When it comes to the giving of the law, that pattern doesn't change. Okay? We're not shifting gears here. We're continuing the same pattern that we've seen up to this point. In fact, I want you to see that the Ten Commandments didn't just come out of nowhere. Okay? They didn't recognize these for the first time when they showed up on the tablets What I want you to see is that God has been patiently teaching his people all along the laws and commandments that will ultimately be used to clarify what they've already known to be true. So if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 18, and let's begin looking at this together. Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel up out of Egypt. So case in point, as I mentioned to you earlier, this is one of what will be many examples of people coming toward the the nation of Israel and recognizing, we've heard about you. (laughs) See, Jethro hadn't talked to Moses yet. All he's heard is all the things that have preceded them. And he's telling Moses, Now, you don't have to say a thing because I have heard all that God has done for his people, Israel. See, God is making a name for himself among the nations. And Israel is increasingly being recognized as a people of his own possession. But I want you to notice how Moses gives the details to Jethro. Look at verse 8. And Moses told his father-in-law... All that the Lord had done. Now let me pause there. Do you remember the last conversation that Moses and Jethro had? Immediately following the burning bush. How much did Moses tell him about all that God had done? Zero. Not a word. Never mentioned a detail about what God had done. But look at the difference here. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of Pharaoh who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Moses describes the details of all that God has done, and Jethro responds in worship. What we see here is, what I believe to be a very sincere confession of faith. And not only that, remember what he's saying here. He says, now I know that the God of Israel, the God who has redeemed you from slavery, that that God is above all other gods. Does that sound familiar at all? That's commandment number one. That I'm above all other gods, and you shall have no gods before me. So before the law has been mentioned, God is patiently instructing them. He's using his great works to demonstrate his supreme sovereignty over all creation. And look at how it continues in verse 13. And it came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood about, about Moses from the morning until this even, till the evening. Now, when Moses' father-in-law saw that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. and When they have a dispute, it comes to me and I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Did you notice what we just said? The verse of, into verse 16. I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known what? The statutes of God and his laws. God is teaching his people the law before the law is ever officially given to them. Moses is settling disputes based on the statutes of the law. But at this point in their development, Jethro notices a problem. Look at what he says in verse 17. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you're doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and your people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. Moses essentially is trying to lead a million-member megachurch. That's how many Israelites there are. There's over a million of them. And every single one of them, every time they have a dispute, is lining up to visit with Moses so that he can explain to them the statutes of the law of God. Jethro says, that's not going (laughs) to work. Moses, either you're going to burn out or the people are going to give up. They're just going to quit coming to you because that's taking way too long. They're there from morning until evening. But keep in mind. God is graciously guiding his people. They're developing an understanding. He's patient with them as he describes the law and the statutes before he ever gives them to them officially. And I think he uses Jethro's counsel here to establish a a standard of governance that, in my opinion, still applies to us today. Look at what he does. Verse 19. Now listen to me. I shall give you counsel, and God be with you, You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute be brought to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law, and he did what he said. In the military, you might call this divide and conquer. (laughs) An economist might say that it is a division of labor. From a biblical perspective, it's called presbyteros. That's a New Testament term used to describe a plurality of elders. And that's exactly what's happening here with Moses. What's happening is, I think, very similar to what we see happening within the early churches. It's being established In the New Testament, Moses is joined by other qualified men who help to shepherd the people of God. And I want you to notice that these aren't names just drawn out of a hat. He's very clear about how these men are to be chosen. There are certain criteria, the most important being verse 21, where it says, men who fear God. In other words, these are men who lead the people out of their own personal pursuit of knowing God. The men of truth, which means that these men are guided by God's standard. They're not just giving out counsel based on what seems right in their own eyes in that particular moment. Their guidance is always grounded in God's truth. As they're being taught by God, by spending time with God, they are taking the law of God and the statutes that He explains to them, and that is the basis by which they then lead and shepherd the people. It goes on and says, these are men who hate dishonest gain, which means that they didn't make judgments based on political or on special favors. It's not a political system of government, okay? This is a spiritual system of government based on godly character. Men who seek to know God and lead and shepherd the people out of that relationship with Him. They teach only those things they've been taught by the word of truth having been spoken to them. You see, God is establishing a society based on His design. And at some level, everyone has a part to play. Not only were they involved in choosing these men who would then Lead is a part of plurality of elders to shepherd the people. But it also says that they're being taught to live accountable to those same laws and standards. Look at verse 20 again. Then teach them, he's speaking about all the people, the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Everyone is learning the statutes and laws of God. They're holding each other accountable. To that very same standard, it's God's divine design for a society that sits under His authority. And within that design, there's a shared responsibility. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. So in the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they sat out, set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, you may remember, back in chapter 3, God made a promise to Moses about a sign. He says, I'll give you a sign, and this is how you know that I'm sovereignly in control. Let me remind you of that promise. Go back to chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So this is in the very first conversation that God was having with Moses at the burning bush. You'll remember all the questions and doubts that Moses had, and he finally said, I need a sign of some sort, even though he was staring at a bush that was burning and not being consumed, but anyway, he needed another sign, so this is what God said to him in verse 12 of chapter 3, and he said, certainly, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship at this mountain. Well, according to chapter 19, (laughs) that day has arrived, because that mountain was Mount Sinai. The promise has been fulfilled. The sign has been delivered. And When Moses meets with God, God reaffirms his commitment to his people. Actually, in verse 5, he calls it a covenant, a covenant promise. It should cause you to remember one of the things that we talked about last time. When God said, if you will listen to my word, if you will receive my commandments, and if you will walk in obedience, I promise, I promise will be your healer. That's the exact same thing that God is reaffirming to his people now. That's the covenant promise. And within that promise is a divine purpose. In verse 6, he says, You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let's talk about what it means to be a holy nation. A holy nation is a people of God who are set apart for a divine purpose. Not because they've earned God's favor, but instead because they've received God's grace. They've been reconciled to God through faith. And that's what makes them a kingdom of of priests. In the New Testament, another term used to describe the very same thing is a minister of reconciliation those who stand before the nations calling on them to be reconciled to God through faith. There are people uniquely qualified to declare the glory of God and to become a light to all the nations. Isaiah puts it this way, those who declare the salvation of the Lord to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Because those who have received God's grace are uniquely equipped To go and tell about it. Now, with so much at stake, God decides to speak directly to his people. Okay? So let's look at verse 9 and see how this begins to take place. Chapter 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words to the people... Of the people to the, Lord, or to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day for on the third day, the day of the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And he shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Because whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And an encounter with God is obviously not something you take lightly, right? This is like having an audience with the king. You don't just waltz in unprepared. In fact, God says, I'm going to give you three days, and I want you to use those three days to to consecrate yourselves, to, to, to purify your heart so that you can come before the Lord with an open heart including a boundary that is clearly established that you must not cross. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it always reminds me, when I think of a scene like this, of that conversation between Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia when she's first learning about Aslan the lion. She's never met him before, and so she's trying to get information about him and asking what he's like, and she talks to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and says, well, well is, he, is he safe? And they said, oh, no, (laughs) he's not safe, but he's good. That's the idea of what is happening here as God prepares to meet with his people. See, the holiness of God is something that we should always take seriously and always strive to protect. In fact, we shouldn't make God so small in order to make him safe. See, God is like a lion. (laughs) He's majestic. He is the king of all kings. He is worthy of honor and praise. I think Swindoll puts it best when he says, If God doesn't bring you to your knees, he will not be exalted in your heart. And that's the idea here. He wants them to come humbly before the Lord as he speaks to them in person. He wants them to have an attitude of reverence and awe look at what happens in verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning and uh, flashes and, and thick clouds upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And then the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down. Warn the people lest they break through the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. This is an experience unlike these people will ever, ever have in their lifetime and one in which they will never, ever forget. (laughs) Did you see all the things that were being described? There was thunder, there was lightning, there was a, a dark cloud, there was an earthquake, there were strong winds. And if, if, if that wasn't enough, there was these trumpets, loud trumpets that grew louder and louder to announce the presence of God. And actually, as I've thought about this, more often when you see trumpets in the Bible, what they're announcing is the judgment of God. Just look at the book of Revelation. And really most everywhere in Scripture, when the trumpets announce the coming of God, they're announcing his coming judgment. So All the people were trembling in fear. Let me ask you. Is there any doubt that he's there? Is there any question about having their attention? I think this is the most wonderfully terrifying experience they could ever imagine. And now that God has made his presence known, he has something very important to say. And I want you to notice that these words are spoken directly from God to his people. Look at verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol of any likeness of what is in heaven or on earth, beneath or in the water, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity on the fathers of children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is where God is explicitly establishing law and order for his people, delivering what we know as the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Let me make sure you understand, not the Ten Suggestions. These are the Ten Commandments. And I also want you to notice that Moses didn't get with the people and come up with a list. Hey, God, we've been talking. We think these look good. What do you think? Right? That's not what happened here. God speaks directly to his people. And it's not just any God. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who delivered you from the house of slavery. What this teaches us is that God is not giving the law in order to redeem his people. God has redeemed his people, and in graciousness, he is guiding them by giving them the law. You see, the law was never intended to produce righteousness. It was always intended to reveal it. That's the purpose of the law. And that's why it's a mistake to to turn the Ten Commandments into a list of rules, which people have done since the beginning of the, the Ten Commandments in the first place. They're trying to turn them into a list of rules. In fact, you may remember in the New Testament, the lawyer who approached Jesus, thinking in his mind of the Ten Commandments, and his question is this teacher, which one is the greatest of the commandments? Do you see what he's done? He's made it a list, a list of rules. And I want to know which ones are the most important so I can make sure I follow those. Why? Because he was under the belief that his behavior was how he received approval from God. As long as he followed the rules, God would accept him. But do you remember what Jesus said in response? He said, actually, there's two. He says, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor, as you love yourself, that in these two, all the law, in fact, all the prophets speak of these things, and it will be fulfilled. See, what Jesus is trying to do is help them understand, as did the Ten Commandments. Look closely. And when you look and examine the Ten Commandments, what you're going to find are the first four govern our relationship with God. The last six govern our relationship with one another. And essentially what Jesus is saying is you can't pick just one. They were designed to be interdependent upon one another so that, in fact, your love for others ultimately flows out of your relationship with God. Righteousness cannot be reduced to a list of rules. It's an issue of the heart. Jesus made that so clear. All throughout the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament, we begin to learn that an idol is much more than just an image carved out of wood. We learn about the idol of greed. We learn about the idol of men's praise. We learn about the idol of money. We hear Jesus say, you can't serve both God and money. So idolatry is more than just an image carved out in wood. Idolatry is an issue of the heart. It's making anything in life, whatever you want to call it, more important than or in some way distracting from Your worship of God as supreme and sovereign over all things in your life. It's an issue of the heart. And and that's true of all the commandments. Which is why Jesus said when he was speaking to the people, he said, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. We recognize that, don't we? Where did that come from? Ten commandments, right? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the ten commandments. But he goes on. But I say to you, every time you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you commit adultery. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, any time you use hateful words towards another person, you've committed murder in your heart. See, it's an issue of the heart. Sinful acts always flow out of a sinful heart. The law was designed to expose our heart so that we would see our need for a Savior. The righteousness of God cannot be achieved. It must be received. That's the purpose of the law. It's not a list of rules. It's used by God to produce a heart that recognizes how much they need His redemption. The law was designed to reveal the righteousness of God. And listen to me. Anytime the righteousness of God is revealed, sin will be exposed. Anytime the righteousness of God is revealed, sin will be exposed. Which begs the question, what do we do with that sin? Well, next week we're going to talk about how God answers that question for the Israelites. But this morning we're in for a treat. Because we're going to see how he answers that question for us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. As we do this, I hope you see how fun it is to see how Scripture uh, speaks to our hearts in such clear ways and how it is so uh, diligent to tie what's happening in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament to our lives. So that may be God calling, so everybody listen up. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged not further, not a further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain, it will die. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and Trembling. Isn't it awesome that the writer of Hebrews is talking about the very same event that we've looked at together this morning? <laughs> He's highlighting the fear of what happened at Mount Sinai, that wonderfully terrifying experience that they had before God. <laughs> so much so that as we would read as we were to continue on in Exodus, the people eventually say, please, stop talking, God. We are scared to death. We don't learn from Exodus, but we do learn from here in, in, in Hebrews that even, trembling, even Moses was trembling with fear. So this was a, a terrifying experience. And here's why. Their fear was based on the imminent judgment of God because the righteousness of God always reveals the sin in our heart. And the wages of sin... Death. And that was made clear in their encounter. Moses was a mediator, but he could not bridge the gap. In my mind, I think God made it so awesomely terrifying in order to protect them, to freeze them in fear so that they could not move. Because he knew that their sin demanded his judgment that's what was happening at mount Sinai. but let's read on verse 22 but you have come to mount zion and to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the first born who are enrolled in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is a completely different scene, isn't it? There's not this sense of fear and trembling, of God's impending judgment. Instead, what you see is people who freely move about the city of God. It's called the the heavenly Jerusalem. They live among the, the angels in the presence of God. It says they are enrolled in heaven which essentially means they have a right to be there. And then it makes it clear that that right wasn't something based on their own behavior. It says that the righteous were made perfect. Something happened to them. And why? It tells us they have a mediator who could close the gap in ways that Moses never could. And his name is Jesus. He did for them what the law could have never, ever done. The blood of Jesus removed their sin and satisfied the judgment of God. The blood of Jesus has removed our sin and satisfied the judgment of God. So instead of being kept behind a barrier for our own protection, we are invited in to the presence of the living God. Jesus removed the barrier and the scripture tells us in his place, brought peace. Ephesians 2.13 says that those who were far off, or we might say those who were kept at a distance, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't this amazing? That Jesus did what the law could have never done. And I want you to know that he didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to say how bad it was. He came to fulfill the law and to show us how good it is. The law only, not only reveals our need for a Savior, it actually shows us who the Savior would be. <laughs> he who was tempted in all things, yet without sin. I hope that you see what God is doing among the Israelites in our study of Exodus is the very same thing that He is doing in our lives as well is so patient and so gracious, teaching us what it means to be his people. He wants our identity to flow out of our relationship with him. And that is a relationship that has been made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Just like Israel, God has called us to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Those very same words are used in the New Testament to describe the church. We are the ministers of reconciliation. We have been set apart for a divine purpose. And let me give you an example how one of the many ways that this might play itself out in our world today. And I want to speak to what's probably on a lot of our minds, and that is the upcoming election. I don't know about you, but... I've been diligent just because I'm so conflicted in the chaos that's going on. I've watched the debates, and my blood pressure goes up 30 points every time I do. And I just wring my hands at the end of the day going, what in the world are we going to do? But I want you to consider with me this morning why this might be the best possible thing that could ever happen to the church. Because let's be clear. God never intended for the government to establish the rule of law. He has always and forever reserved that right for his people. So instead of looking at the elected officials to establish that rule of law, wouldn't it make more sense that God's people are the ones who are most committed to doing that in their own hearts? By aligning their lives with the truth Of God's Word, with biblical values, with His principles of morality that reflect His character, His goodness, His righteousness, to live as a community as He intended us to be, a light to the nations. You see, if we're just as panicked as everybody else, (laughs) what does that say about our God? What does that say about who we believe is ultimately in control? Shouldn't his sovereignty be a source of peace? Yeah, I realize Jesus is not running for president. But I also realize he is running the universe. And we live under the goodness and the grace of his sovereign control. You know, I thought about this, and I think it's easy for us to look at the Israelites. And I want you to listen closely to some of the things that we might say or maybe have said as we've gone through this study together. You know those silly people, those Israelites? <laughs> they're longing for a time when slavery was the rule of the day, as if those were the better times. Those silly Israelites, they're grumbling and complaining in the midst of all of God's faithful provision. Those silly Israelites, they're trembling in fear. They think everybody's doomed. Those silly Israelites. Doesn't that sound familiar (laughs) to what we hear being echoed out of the church these days? May it never be. God is patient. And he has equipped his church for times just like this. He's designed his church to put his manifold uh, wisdom on display. He's commissioned his church to declare that the kingdom has come and that he rules and reigns supreme. You see, I think the best possible thing that could happen to the church is for it to be distinctive, increasingly so, in comparison to the world around us. And maybe that's what's happening. That distinction is ultimately what should put the gospel on display. It should show the goodness of God's design, the protection from within his boundaries. So instead of racial divides, we have unity in the midst of diversity. Instead of panic, we have hope in the midst of turmoil. Instead of compromise, we have truth in the midst of deception. Church, do you realize that that's what God has done, gone to such great lengths to equip us for? It's times just like this. So let me encourage you. As this election process carries on, and yes, a president will be elected. But that president is not the one who's in control. And very likely, this world is going to continue in a path, having betrayed the law of God, To allow men and women to do what's right in their own eyes. And that will lead to chaos as it has through every era since the beginning of time. But that difference of what is happening in the darkness of that chaos is what allows the light of the church to shine at its best. And so let me urge you to use this situation that we find ourselves in at this time in our lives not as a place of panic or disillusionment or in 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 my case (laughs) blood pressure going up 30 points right and be able to rest in peace knowing that god is in control that we can trust him that he's good and that goodness is built within the protection of his truth which he has freely given to us and called you and i to share with those around us remember what isaiah said That God's people may declare his salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what this time is made for. So let's be faithful to that and rest in his promises. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we look at things like what we've talked about this morning as something that's too coincidental to be a coincidence. How is it that we come to our study of Exodus right on the precipice of an election in our country? How is it that we come to find your description of the security that we find in a society established on the biblical values and moral code that reflects your character when we live in a world when it's just the opposite? Maybe things are too coincidental to be a coincidence, and in fact it's the sovereignty of God at work in the lives of His people. (laughs) Maybe you have visited and spoken to us just as much as you did to your people in the Exodus. But here's the difference. We don't stand in fear of judgment because we have a mediator who has bridged the gap and taken that judgment for us upon himself through his death on the cross so that we can come freely and confidently to the throne of grace. That we can be free and confident in the protection of your love, that we can be free and secure in the protection of your promise. that's not just for now, but for all eternity. Help us find strength and encouragement and joy so that our joy stands <laughs> in distinct contrast to the panic from the world around us. And we can tell them why. We can tell them about you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Have a great day.